Good morning. I am glad to be back here with you this week. Glad that uh, Yancey and Sheila made it in from Florida today. They've gone a long way. We're glad that you're here. Hope that uh, you've, you've enjoyed our study so far. We are concluding our series today. We're going to talk about the culture of the church today and where we've come in the last hundred years and uh, what, what we do to go from here. In the context of this history, we've talked about how the church was persecuted for the first 250 years. We talked about how the Roman government took over the church and it was an imperial Christianity for about 350 years. And then how there was the Holy Roman Empire and the, the Christendom of, of Christianity being a government that used military force to enforce its dictates throughout the world for about a thousand years. We talked about the Reformation and Reformed Christianity where people tried to change and amend the corruption of the church, that uh, the visible church that existed then. We talked about restored Christianity where all of the denominations that came to be from the Reformation... The idea was let's restore Christianity and let's have unity. And instead of following the Catholic Church or instead of following Martin Luther or John Calvin or those guys and their writings, let's just follow the Bible and unite with everyone who follows the Bible. Now we're going to talk about modern Christianity roughly the last hundred years or so. You know, what we had last week was a unity movement. That's a good idea, isn't it? Jesus prayed for unity. And we had a movement to produce unity among Christians. But what we see today, oddly enough, is division within a unity movement. Now, that doesn't make much sense, does it? We're trying to unify and we end up dividing. But actually, that's kind of what happened. You know, in... What we've just talked about the first 250 years or so, you had the infant church seeking to reach the world for Christ. Then you had the imperial church coercing the world and forcing people to claim Christianity. Then you had the Catholic church controlling the world. Then you had denominations that divided the church. Then you had Christians seeking to unite the church. Today, we've got the restorationists as they divide the church again along different lines. So let's talk about how a unity movement turned into a diversity movement or a divisive movement. The restoration plea was this. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. Those are the words of Jesus. And I'll tell you, this is my least favorite of this series of lessons. And, and the reason for that is no one likes to talk about the crazy ant we keep locked in the attic, right? <laughs> we don't like to talk about our own dirty laundry. But as we sit here having the heritage of the churches of Christ and having the heritage of the restoration movement, we're going to talk about how that restoration, that ideal of unity that Jesus laid out here and that these early restorationists embraced and promoted, 
We're going to talk about how that ended up splintering and dividing into lots of different places. You know, there are a lot of religious groups in the United States that have a restoration heritage. And when I say that, what I mean is they didn't come from the denominations that came over from Europe to America. They're new denominations that develop from within America after the restoration movement. All of these churches you see listed up there right now come from the restoration movement. They come from divisions that happened within this group of people who said, you know what, we don't need man-made creeds, we just need the Bible. And all these different groups came from that. So let's look at how that happened. The very first division that really happened within this was what we call a parachurch organization. And it was a division based on the question of whether you could have other organizations than the church that did church work. Okay? For instance, missionary societies, orphanages, and colleges. The word para means alongside of. And, you know, God, Jesus Christ, sent His disciples out to preach the gospel, right? We all agree with that. Okay? That's what Christians do. They tell other people about Jesus. There's an effort put forth by some people to say, you know what, we need to tell people in India and Nigeria and China and different places around the world about Jesus. How do we do that? Well, that costs money to send people over there. I know, let's raise some money and we'll create an organization that their job is to train Christians to go teach the gospel to other people and send them out to do that. Well, you know, that's kind of the church's job. So some people said, you know, really, you shouldn't be doing that. Only churches should be doing that. And other people are going, well, you know, God didn't design specific rules about how this is to work, so let's put together some organizations to do that. And so there was this real contention over this issue, and it ultimately produced division In the churches. What about orphans? What do we do about orphans? Kent and Christy want to adopt an orphan. You know, the Scriptures teach us to take care of the needy, don't they? They teach us to care for those, the fatherless. Don't the Scriptures teach us that? So how are we going to do that? Well, there's so many fatherless in some places, we couldn't all adopt them. I mean, even if we all adopted one or two or three or all we could take care of, we can't adopt all of them. What are you going to do? Well, some people said what we need to do is we need to set up orphanages and churches will send money in these orphanages. The problem people had was the orphanages weren't overseen by church. They were just overseen by their board of directors. And some people said, you know, you've got a a non-church group doing what the church is supposed to do. So there was division. Colleges and other things that came along with that. That happened in about the year 1875. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 1875, that's, what, 135 years ago? Something like that, 130 years ago? Long time ago. The next real division that came along in this was a division about instrumental music. You know, the Reformers had very conflicting ideas about this. Martin Luther and John Calvin had no problem with instrumental music. 
The church hadn't had instrumental music the first thousand years or so. Then they added it. And by the time the Reformation comes along, most Catholic churches had instrumental music. John Calvin says, ah, I don't really like it, but, you know, it's okay. Martin Luther says, yeah, that's fine. That's great. Zwingli said, no. We don't do that because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what early Christianity did. We shouldn't have instrumental music. So there were differing opinions about this in these different denominations. Did you know, one of the things that people learn about the Church of Christ real quick is, well, y'all the ones don't believe in music. You ever heard that? Okay. Well, the truth is there are millions and millions of people on earth who claim to be Christians who don't have instrumental music in their churches. Now, not much here in the United States, even though there are some other denominations in the United States that don't use it. But there was a real divisiveness about this. In the year 1906 is the first year that there was really a significant difference so that the U.S. Census Bureau listed these two groups as separate churches. And the names they came out with were the Disciples of Christ and the Churches of Christ. And the Churches of Christ were the group that didn't have instruments. And the Disciples of Christ were the group that decided to accept instruments. Now, you know as well as I do that that's begun to change even in the Churches of Christ. There are a lot of Churches of Christ today that have added instrumental music. Now, not near all of them, but there are a lot of the congregations that have done that. The Disciples of Christ Church... And let me tell you, as we go through this, I'm focusing on us, going toward us. So as different groups branch off, we're not going to spend time discussing all their divisions and all their branches. But just enough to tell you that the Disciples of Christ split not long after that, and you get the first Christian church and the Disciples of Christ that came out of that. And so these congregations, you've probably seen first Christian churches around. You've probably seen Disciples of Christ around. My wife and I had some real good friends that uh, homeschooled their kids with us, and he was an elder in a first Christian church over in Plano, and uh, I believe it was Plano or Allen, that area. So they're, they're around. They teach the same gospel we teach. There are just some differences in how they carry out their uh, public behavior. Now, I say behavior, they're public assemblies. The churches of Christ, focusing just on that, through history and through the years, through the last 100, 125 years or so, there have been a bunch of divisions in the churches of Christ. I'm just going to throw a few of them up here for you. And these divisions, I have aligned roughly along a line from liberal to radical. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Normally, you'd see liberal to conservative, right? But I believe the further away you get from what the Bible says, the more liberal you are. I think you're liberal for adding to, and I think you're liberal from taking away from God's Word. So I think either direction, in my understanding, would be liberal. But I I have chosen to call the far right side of this radical. Um, And what I want to do is just give you... A a real basic, we're not going to talk a lot about a lot of the differences. ICOC is the International Churches of Christ. 
that's a movement that started in Boston in the 1970s. They have been by far the most successful at spreading their brand of Church of Christ Christianity throughout the world. Since the 1970s, they've started four to 500 congregations all over the world. Many, many thousand people. They really spread and they really grown. They started with a congregation about, well, not even this size. It was even smaller than this congregation. And a guy named Kip McKeon in Boston. And uh, they really, really have grown. Their structure is very much like the Catholic Church. The church in Boston is the mother church, and all the other churches fall in a hierarchy underneath that. Um, And they've changed a lot of things. You'll notice some of these are in a little darker color. Those are what we would call Sunday school churches. And there's all different branches and divisions in that. And then there are these lighter ones here that are congregations that don't have Sunday school. Notice I've put you right here, right close to the Bible. I did that because that's where I believe we are. That's where I believe that we try to function and practice is right close to this. So I want to look at briefly just some of these divisions that occurred. Here's a division that occurred in 1920s. It was a division in Sunday school. Before 1920s, none of the churches of Christ had Sunday school. Sunday school, in fact, for the first 1700 years, no churches had Sunday school. When I was in London... Uh, a few years ago with Ray Cook, we were walking, we were doing a little touring of London, and we were trying to get down to where the tour bus was supposed to pick people up, and we were running a little bit late, and we were walking along this street, and I said, let's cut through this alleyway, right? Maybe we can cut through and cut right down, because we kind of had a map and it showed a little park. He said, okay, and we cut through that, and there was a statue... When we cut through this alley, we ended up in this park and there were all these people gathered around this statue and they were setting up to do some kind of a news broadcast from there. And as we walked through, I said, well, I'm going to look at this statue and see what it's about. And there's a picture of me standing by that statue. Okay, I'm down in the shadows down there. That statue is a statue of a guy named Robert Rakes. And you can't read that from there, so let me make it a little bit bigger for you. Robert Rakes, the founder of Sunday schools in 1780. That's what that statue says. Robert Rakes was an educator. And back in these days, education wasn't free. Tax dollars didn't pay for education. And so rich kids got educated and poor kids didn't. Poor kids went and worked all day, every day. Robert Rakes was worried about that, concerned about that. He thought everyone needed education. He said, let's start free schools for kids. Well, the kids had to work six days a week. You can't take them out of work. They had to work. So what are you going to do? Well, we'll do school on Sundays. And he talked to a Methodist church there close to him. He said, can I use your building and do school on Sunday? They said, well, that's fine, except for the fact that we have church on Sunday and the kids need church on Sunday. You don't need to take them out of church either. He said, well, i tell you what. We'll teach them reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion. And that way we'll cover all the bases and we can give free education to kids on Sunday and not take them out of being taught religion. That's where it started. Now, as time changed, as tax money began to be used for education and society decided that was a noble and worthy thing, pretty much anyone in the United States or in Europe can get an education now without it costing them particularly, personally, money other than the tax money. 
And so they did away, they didn't need to teach reading, writing, arithmetic on Sundays, so they did away with that, but they already had the system in place to teach religion on Sundays in classes in these Sunday schools. And that's how Sunday school came into the church. This was in the 1780s. For about a hundred years, a lot of denominations started having Sunday schools. No churches of Christ did, none of them. In the early 1900s, though, in the 1920s, some of the Church of Christ's churches of Christ began to put in, they would call it Bible classes because they said Sunday school's unscriptural. We're going to have, call it Bible classes. And there they had some distinctions. They didn't have officers appointed over it and stuff like that. They believed that it was unscriptural to have a Sunday school, but they would have Bible classes. Now, the Sunday school churches through the last hundred years or so have split into at least 40 different groups that I know of. There's non-institutional, those are, there's one of those in, in Denton, in fact, down here on East Side. It's a congregation that believes you can't use your money, the money of the church to pay for food or anything for anyone who's not a member of the church, and you can't eat on church property, and there, there are a lot of specific rules that they have developed. There are premillennial churches of Christ that believe in the, the rapture, that Jesus is going to come back and rapture people off. There's what I call the promise keepers group, and uh, I call it that because this is the group of churches that has pretty much followed the teaching of Max Lucada, who was very influenced by the promise keepers movement. And he's written, he's a great writer, written a lot, I've read a lot of his books, and very passionate and very influential. And he's taught people, most of these churches are doing away with the name Church of Christ nowadays. I know his congregation down in San Antonio doesn't use the name Church of Christ anymore. Some of them have decided to allow women teachers. Some of them have a doctrine about A.D. 70 in the second coming of Christ that they say that the second coming of Jesus happened when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70 and that Jesus is never going to come back again, that that happened in A.D. 70. There's the Boston movement we've already talked about. There are churches of Christ that have decided to accept homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. There are churches of Christ that have become charismatic all of these are splits that happen within that group. And, and like I said, there are over 40 of them. We could go on and on. In the 1920s, the later 1920s, there was another big division that happened in the churches of Christ. And that was over the number of containers that are in communion. Now, we've got, I don't know how many each one of these trays holds, but 40 or 50, something like that in each tray. This contention was that the Bible says Jesus took the cup and blessed it, and therefore you can only use one container to have communion, the fruit of the vine in. And that really, really matters to those people. It matters so much that they call it a test of fellowship. You know what that means? That means that that's a litmus test that if you use one container then you're a faithful Christian. And if you don't, then you're not. That's the test of fellowship. And it split churches. It split lots and lots and lots and lots of churches. All over the United States, this doctrine did. These groups, as far as I know personally, have split into about 20 different groups that I know of. There's the 
there's a division whether the grape juice should be fermented or unfermented. And there's a real serious problem about that between these congregations. Some say it has to be alcoholic wine. Others say it can't be alcoholic wine. Whether or not you break the bread. Y'all know Sean, my cousin? Y'all remember Sean? He was raised going to a one-container church. And it was a church that said that the bread had to be broken. Let me think. No, it was one that said the bread could not be broken. And their argument is not a bone in the body of Christ was broken. Therefore, if you break the bread, that's not really the body of Christ because that's been broken. Okay? And Sean told me that when he was a kid, they had a visitor one time that came from the other group that believed you should break the bread because the Bible says the body of Christ was broken. And so she, when the bread came by her, she just took it upon herself to break that bread before she sent it on down the line. And it got down, now this was out in the country, small church, they had windows open. When it got on down the line, there was one lady who felt very strongly the other way. And when it came to her, she picked up one of the pieces and sailed it right out the window (laughs) before she passed it on. Isn't that, we laugh about that, how silly that is. But you know, this is very important to these people. Their convictions on that are very strong. There are divisions about whether you say prayer before or after dividing the juice. And some of them believe that if you've said the prayer over the juice in one container, then you can go ahead and divide it. And they've got a contraption that sets on top of this and holds all the juice together. And they'll say the prayer and then they can push a button and it goes through these tubes out into all the individual containers. There's a division over whether the contribution should be put on the table or not. Because the Scriptures say, lay by in store by Him. And so they say, well, this is Jesus, so when we give, we lay by Him in store, so you have to put the basket right here, and you have to come up and actually put the money on the table in the basket by Him. There's a division over whether or not you can wear gold or whether or not you can cut your hair. They've divided over divorce and remarriage. Tremendous numbers of divisions in, in this group. There's another thing that happened in the 1950s, and these last two kind of go together, pastor system and chain fellowship. Many churches, borrowing from the denominational world, which borrowed from Catholicism, had the idea that you need one guy to lead the church. And the truth is, many churches had sorry teaching. That's just the truth. Educated, who couldn't read very well, and a lot of times people would just get on their hobby horse and they'd preach about their hobby horse instead of teaching the Bible. Now, we're real careful about that here, that the Word of God is taught. But that's not always the case. And in the 1950s, there was a guy named G.B. Shelburne who had the idea that, you know, what we need to do is set up a school and train men who are preachers. And his motive was good. His motive was, we've got sorry teaching and we need good teaching. And I appreciate that motive. I agree with that. There were a lot of people who said, though, no, there's no office such as the minister or the preacher or the pastor, whatever you want to call it, of a church. We don't need a professional pulpit man. And... 
There are many people who lined up behind G.B. Shelburne and many men who lined up on the other side. They had a big meeting out in West Texas in the 1950s. And out of that meeting came this split. And initially, there were two groups. There were the group that said, you should have a minister in every church and we're going to work for that. And then there was a group that said, we shouldn't have a minister and we're going to work against that. And then the group that said, you shouldn't have a minister, they split because their leaders, guys named Paul and Leland Knight, decided that not only shouldn't you have a minister, but you shouldn't have anything to do with anyone who's liberal enough that they would have a minister in their church. And many of the brethren said, oh no, we don't feel that way. We don't think that's the way to do it. We don't want to hire a preacher, but we don't believe we need to cut off all these brethren in churches that do believe they ought to hire a man to do the preaching. And so there was this this disconnect, and this these two brothers decided they'd start publishing a church paper called The Church Messenger. Uh, we lovingly called it The Church Mess when I, when I was young. Because what they did is they put a list of faithful churches in this paper. And if you had something to do with a church that wasn't listed in that paper and they found out about it, either you confessed fault or they took your name out of the paper... And you weren't a faithful church anymore. So, uh, as you can see, that was just a terrible, terrible mess. And what's happened through the years, there are very few churches left that just have a hired pulpit man or a hired minister that haven't added classes or done away with that. There are a few of them, but there aren't a whole lot left. Uh, one of them was Farmer's Branch down here. Many of you know the church at Farmer's Branch, and I'm not picking on them particularly, but they did that. They chose to hire a full-time minister. Now you go down to Farmer's Branch, and they're not even similar to what we would know as the Church of Christ. They've got instrumental music, and they've added classes, and all kinds of things that are very, very different from what we know and do today. Um, the other group here, the Chain Fellowship Group, they pretty much have divided themselves out of existence. There's just almost none of them left, and they just keep dividing and keep dividing and splitting over every little thing. It's like a, I heard a guy talking one time. He said, you know, I'm, I, I think we're down to just me and you going to heaven, and I'm starting to wonder about you. <laughs> and that's kind of the attitude and the way that that, uh, that has developed. Now, originally you had the New Testament church and the ideal was that it was founded on the Bible, the ideal that God wanted us to follow. Over the first 600 years or so, that eventually developed into the system of the Pope. Through the Reformation, they came back closer to the Bible and decided the Bible should unite people. Then with the Restoration, they brought it all the way back to saying, hey, let's just use the Bible. And since that time, everyone who united on the Bible has begun now to redivide over the idea of, well, yeah, the Bible is all we need, but you have to understand the Bible this way or you're not really right. Now, let me ask you a question. Who caused the divisions? Who caused these divisions? I was raised being taught, well, people who brought in the innovations caused the divisions, right? I mean, people who decided that their church was going to use Sunday school, they're the ones that caused that division. People that decided to hire a preacher, they're the ones that caused that division. People that decided to add multiple containers, oh, wait, wait, (laughs) we better not say that. 
You know, what the truth is and the reality is that when, when an idea like Sunday school comes along that changes the structure and the worship of a church, the leadership of churches, as that idea gains popularity, the leadership of churches is going to decide, are we going to do that or are we not? And what you had was godly, decent men making decisions on both sides. And some of them said, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. I think it would help the growth of the church. Let's do that. Other people said, oh, I see a lot wrong with it. It's not biblical. We're not going to do that. And what happened in church after church was the disenfranchised few decided, well, we're not going to put up with it. You know what I mean by that? If a church decided we're not going to have Sunday school, there were a group of people in that congregation who said, oh, yes, we are. And we're going to move down the street and build another building and we're going to have Sunday school. If the elders of the church decided, yeah, we're going to have Sunday school, there were a group of people who said, oh, no, we're not. And we're going to move down the street and build another church and we're not going to have Sunday school. The church at Gunner came into existence because the congregation that was there, the leadership was divided over whether to add Sunday school or not. And some of the leadership said, no, we're not going to do it. And others said, yes, we are. And one Sunday morning when the brethren who said, no, we're not, got to church, the brethren who said, yes, we are, had changed the locks on the doors and they couldn't get in. Those kind of, you know, we've gone through something like that here, hadn't we? It's a terrible thing when people divide like that. And the truth is you can't lay the fault for the division on any one group of people. It was different in different places. It was people who were disenfranchised who demanded their way. And you had people of good conscience on both sides of these issues. You also had people who were contrarian and divisive on both sides of these issues in all these different places. Now, let me ask you this question. Are the people we differ with really Christians? What about people in Sunday school churches? What about people in churches that just have one container in the Lord's Supper? Are they really Christians? How do you answer that? I had a talk with a guy one time, and uh, I made the mistake of using the phrase our Sunday school brethren. And he corrected me real quick and he said, they're not my brethren. And I said, what do you mean they're not your brethren? He said, well, they're in error. Well, that's true. They, I mean, I believe that's true. I don't believe Sunday school is God's plan for the church. He said, they're in error and because they're in error, they're not faithful brethren. And I said, well, the Bible teaches that when you obey the gospel, you're born again, right? Well, yeah. Did they obey the gospel? Well, I said, yes, they obeyed the same gospel you did. They were taught the same gospel you were taught. They were baptized the same way you were baptized. They were born into the kingdom of God. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he thought about it and he said, well, they were born dead. Because they were born into error. Really? You know, our job, and this is, 
I think such a critical thing for us to understand. Our job here at Anna Street is to do the best we can to walk as close as we can to what we find in the Bible. It's not to decide whether the people down at Singing Oaks are Christians or not. That's not my business. That's not my job to discern. It's not my job to say people who are different than me aren't right with God. God's the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. No one judges but God. My job is to judge me and to make sure I'm doing the best I can to do what God asked me to do. You see, when you look at fellow Christians around the world or in your hometown, what you see depends a whole lot on where you're standing. Let me show you what I mean by that. We talked about that Scripture. If you're standing over here on what I would call the radical end, and you're really conservative about everything, you're going to see a liberal behind every tree. You know why? Because there's nobody more radical than you. So everyone you look at is going to be more liberal than you are, and you're going to walk around scared to death that there's liberals everywhere, and the liberals are going to take the church away, and you're going to fight liberalism all your life. So if all you see when you look around you are liberals, guess what you are? You're radical. If on the other hand, you're very, very liberal, the only people you're going to be able to see are people who are more conservative, more radical, more legalistic than you are. And so when you look at everyone else, oh, there's legalists everywhere. Everyone's a legalist. I'm a, there's very few of us left that aren't legalists. If all you see are radicals or legalists, guess what you are? You're liberal. Now what God teaches, and I believe what the truth is, is that where we want to be is on the Bible. And as close to the Bible as we can be, we're going to look one direction. We're going to see people who believe that they can take liberties with some of the commands in the Bible, some of the things that God said, and either not do them or change them. And that's going to seem liberal to us. And we're going to look on the other end and we're going to see people who say, yeah, you need to do what the Bible says, but you also need to do this and this and this. And if you don't believe it this way and this way and this way, you're not... And we're going to go, well, that's more conservative. That's more radical. And I believe Scripture teaches us to focus on Christ and the Scriptures and not focus on all the people around us. That's why the Bible says, set your eyes on Christ. He's the one I want to look at. He's the one I want to focus on. And I don't need to spend my life focusing on what's wrong with everybody else. I need to spend my life focusing on what's right with Christ and walking as close as I can to that. In today's climate, there are some things that really stand out to me. Number one, there's a growing hostility toward Christianity. Have you noticed that? In America, there's a growing hostility. I read comments of somebody, and I can't remember now who it was, but somebody pretty famous recently who compared Christianity to a disease, a virus that should be stamped out of our culture. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? To say that Christianity... I can, I can stomach somebody that says, well, I disagree with you about that. I don't think... But to say we're a disease that needs to be stamped out and is the hindrance of our culture? 
Our children are growing up in a culture and a society that are is much, much more hostile to Christianity. These little ones here. Zach, your little one. She's growing up in a different world than you grew up in. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be aware of that. Jesus said, the world hated me and it's going to hate you if you follow me. And that is really coming to fruition here in America. Another thing in America is the increasing value of tolerance of everything except Christianity. And the idea, even in most Christian churches nowadays, most of these churches up and down the streets, is it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. It doesn't make any difference. You've seen the honk if you love Jesus bumper stickers. That's about as contentious. You know, I used to believe that people didn't want to come be part of the church of Christ because we taught you need to be baptized to be saved. That's not true anymore. It may used to have been true 50 years ago. Anymore, people don't care if you teach you need to be baptized. It doesn't make them any difference. Just as long as you love Jesus, that's all that matters. And there's no difference in that. And there's a... As a result of that, partially, I believe there's a decreasing sense of brand loyalty. And I, I wish I had better words. Maybe y'all can help me with that later. But, you know, in, in the Reformation period, brand loyalty mattered. You were a Lutheran or Calvinist, and you were willing to die for that, and you were willing to kill people who weren't Lutherans or Calvinists. Brand loyalty mattered. When I was a kid, my dad would drive all the way across Oklahoma City to fill up at a Texaco station. Because of his brand loyalty. You know where I fill up? Whatever's the cheapest and most convenient. That's where I fill up. I have no brand loyalty to a gas station at all. You know where I eat? If I'm in a hurry, just whatever's the closest place to pull over, the most convenient, is where I eat. We don't have brand loyalty. And that's true of people as a whole in their Christianity. I can't tell you how many people I've met that I know that when they move to another community, they just look for a church they like. They don't go, well, we're Baptists, so we're going to look for a Baptist church. It doesn't make them any difference if it's a Baptist church or Methodist or church of Christ, whatever. That means nothing to them. Now, I think that holds some advantage to us because people don't come with the preconceived notions against what we teach like they used to. But it also holds some dangers for us in that as a culture, our young people are growing up and they're much more likely because of the culture that they've grown up in when they go off to college and move to just look for a church and not have any, any concern about what the doctrines of that church are or what that church teaches. Another thing is that selfishness is becoming respectable. Looking for Christianity has become looking for something that pleases me. Looking for something that's going to meet the needs of my family. I was talking at uh, this leadership meeting and I was talking about things that are wrong with our culture and our society. Do you think, honestly, that Jesus would own a selfie stick? I mean, when you think about it, can you see Jesus running around with his selfie stick? I'm not picking on selfie sticks more than anything else. I just think they're a symbol of the selfishness that's in America. I, you know, there's nothing wrong if you want to picture yourself by the Eiffel Tower or something. But the idea that it's respectable to be selfish. 
is really taken off in America. You got to look out for you. And it's acceptable today. It's what everybody expects. And when you move, when you go somewhere, when you look for a church, you want to look for a church that makes you happy. You want to look for a church that's going to satisfy your desires, that's going to have a program for your age kids, and it's going to do this. Or If you have an outreach mindset, then you're going to look for an outreach-based church. If you have a social causes mindset, you're going to look for a social causes church. And that's just the way our culture is. So given these things, and we could probably find a list of 50 more, But given these things, what are some things that we need to do and directions we need to go? I've got several things I want to mention very briefly. Number one, be ready for an influx of people. I don't know when or if that's going to happen. But I do know this. There are people in churches that are the churches are getting really, really liberal that those people don't like that. There are people who have convictions about following the Bible and they're in churches where their preachers increasingly don't follow the Bible and they don't like that, and they're looking for something different. There are also people in congregations that are getting more and more radical that don't like that. I just went to a a leadership meeting this weekend. Kent was there. Mark was there. There were a lot of brethren there from groups of churches that used to wouldn't have anything to do with us, that work and function and, and fellowship with us today because they have gotten tired of the extremes, the radical extremes. Secondly... Avoid extremism. I don't believe extremism has ever been God's plan for us. In any doctrine, extremism is a problem. You know, grace and works. What what saves us, grace or works? Well, the truth is, obedient faith will not save us if there's no grace. But grace won't save us if we won't obey God. That's the truth. But you could go grace crazy and think all you got to do is... Just trust the grace of God and never obey Him. Or you can go works crazy and end up with penance and purgatory and all these other things. The truth is in between. Fellowship. Do we just open our arms and honk if you love Jesus and everybody's a Christian? Is that true? Or is it just me and you and I'm wondering about you? Is that true? You know, you can go to either extreme on any of these doctrines. The doctrine of divorce and remarriage. We can make that so stringent and end up to where anyone who ever has been divorced and remarried has to divorce who they're married to and go back and find their original spouse and bust up that marriage. Or you can just get to, hey, fine, you know, just find one that you like and if you get tired of her, have another one. You can go to extremes on any doctrine. We don't have any right to go to extremes. It's wrong. It's our culture, but it's wrong. We need to draw our doctrine from what we find the Bible really teaches and be careful about extremes. Judge everything by the Scriptures. That's what we've just been talking about. Jesus said, the words that I speak will judge you. I'm going to be judged by the words Jesus speaks. I got in real trouble one time for doing something. An eldership called me and they were upset that I was, I was going to do something. We had a, a, a weekend where the, the women were all, Christian women were all going to get together and I was going to do some teaching to the Christian women about their responsibilities. And this guy called me from a church and he was really upset I was going to do that. We'd use the word retreat on the flyer. And he said, if you're retreating, you're running from something. 
you know, and I mean, he was really unhappy with me. And I said, well, let's talk about this and see if I'm doing something unscriptural, I'll quit. Just like that, I'll stop it. If you can show me anything in the Bible that says I shouldn't gather these ladies together and teach them. I was trying to do what God told Titus to do. And that's teach the older women to teach the younger women. So I went and I sat down with this man and his fellow elder. And you know what their argument against this was to me? He said, well, it just seems denominational. It kind of did, probably. That's not a reason to not do something. Denominational churches have worship on Sunday. We're going to quit doing that because that seems denominational. I'm not judged by what other churches do. We're judged by what the Bible says. You see, we need to judge everything we do by what the Bible tells us to do. And we try to do what the Bible tells us to do to the very best of our ability. We need to get serious about church. It needs to matter. I know your kids' ball games are important. But I'm going to tell you, practice or games are not more important than taking your children to church. They're just not. Your children need to make, well, they're part of a team. Yeah, and they're part of a team here too. And we need to be serious about our commitment to Christ. We don't decide, well, you know, this weekend I'm going to go to the cowboy game and skip church. That's not what God wants you to do. And if we hope to make an impact on the world around us, if we're lukewarm in our commitment and we're willing to do other things instead of honor our commitment to be a part, an active part of Christ's church, we're not going to influence anybody because that's not any different than everyone else does. We need to make a commitment to the church. I know people who are sick pretty often, but it's always on the weekend. They can always make it to church. I mean, always make it to work, but when they get sick, it's always on the weekend. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody in particular. I'm just saying we need to make choices. We need to be a people of initiative. I readily confess, all of you that know me know, I'm a guy who thinks it to death and moves really slow because I don't want to make a mistake about things. The older I get, the worse that seems to be. I need pushed. I need pushed and I'm grateful for people who push me. I told Brother Larry that the other day. I said, I know I need pushed. Sometimes you push harder than I like, but I know I need pushed. We need to show some initiative. And I'll tell you what happens, I've seen. If the leaders and members of a church don't show initiative, people who are fringe members will show initiative by not coming back is what happens. And we need to show initiative in the work that we do. We also need to be aggressive in our evangelism. And we need to make plans to deal with future challenges. Have you thought about what would happen? Let's, let's just suppose that one of the big Sunday school churches in town had a split and 80 members wanted to come and be a part of this congregation. What would you say about that? What would you think about that? Would that be good? Well, you know, all of a sudden, we'd have about as many people who come from Sunday school church as we do from us. And then what's going to happen? 
Are we going to get outvoted in a in a business meeting? I mean, they're they're real questions. Like I've seen things like that happen. How are we going to handle that stuff? Well, we've made a lot of strides in this congregation in the past few years. Now we have elders who would make those decisions and lead that. We're much more prepared to handle that. But we need to continue to think about the future and prepare for it. And finally, learn from the past. Learn from the past. You know, we've all heard those that don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And I thought about using that, which I guess I just did, didn't I? <laughs> but that's that's not really a reason to learn about the past and learn from the past. What is a Bible reason for that, though? Have you ever read the Old Testament? You know what it is? It's stories about people who obeyed and disobeyed God and what happened when they did. And what we have done over the, this last six weeks is we've talked about stories of people who obeyed and disobeyed God and what we can learn from that. People today will continue to obey and disobey God. We, you and I, will continue to obey and disobey God. But we need to learn as best we can so that we don't make the same mistakes at least as readily or as eagerly or as as consistently as people in the past have made. We don't need to be divisive, but we don't need to throw caution to the wind and just accept anything that comes along. We need to be as faithful as we can to the Word of God, but we need to keep our business in our business. We need to worry about us. We need to be concerned about whether we're doing what God wants us to do and not so concerned about whether churches somewhere else are doing what God wants them to do. Because God's not judging me based on them. He's judging me based on us and what we do. I have really enjoyed this study and I hope you have been encouraged and I hope you've learned some things, some things that were interesting to you, but some things maybe that will help you in your life as you seek to serve God and as we as a congregation here seek to serve God. Pitfalls we can avoid, warnings to heed, also promises and blessings to embrace. Um, if there's a spiritual matter that needs to be brought before the church, we do offer a song of invitation if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.